The scripture today is from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I don't, I don't know if I need to tell you this, some of you already know this, but, but there are professing Christians who view the acquisition or the gaining of material wealth or riches as an unqualified good, a categorical good. Uh, Riches are a surefire sign of God's blessing and favor. So we are told. And And you can see how somebody might get there, right? So think about all the patriarchs, the heroes of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I mean, those guys were incredibly wealthy by the standard of their day. And you fast forward a little bit and, and you get to probably the most famous ruler in the history of Israel, and that was King David. If you do the math on his giving, he contributed $7 billion, roughly. Think about this, of his own money for the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. Fairly wealthy. And then in 2 Chronicles 1, verse 12, God himself says this to David's son Solomon. Listen, I will also give you riches. God's saying that. Possessions and honor such as none of the kings had who were before you. And then Psalm 112 just comes right out and says that wealth and riches are in the house of the man who fears the Lord. And then you've got Jesus who comes and and promises that he showed up that we might have life and life abundantly. You know, you, you hear all that and you can think, well, what more proof do we need? If you're wealthy, God obviously loves you. If you're not, then you better get yourself in gear to figure out what's gone wrong because God creates and saves his children to be the head of the economic train, not the tail. He's waiting to to pour out that that good measure into your lap, pressed down, shaken together, running over with dollar signs all over it. You can understand, I hope, how a professing Christian could think that or could go there. Maybe you believe that on some level, or, or maybe if you don't, think about this. Does, doesn't part of you still wish that were true? 
be honest, okay, to take off your holier than thou, Bible truth answer, just in your heart, doesn't part of you wish that were true? I think we're hardwired to consider gaining money or possessions or a bigger house or a nicer car or or more savings in the bank as an unqualified good. The the sort of blessing that, that God ought to give us if he really loved us. And so, you know, what do we do, friends? Again, let's just be honest. We love to take pot shots at one percenters. You know who I'm talking about? On social media, right? But I bet if one of those crazy rich people, you know, it's never somebody like you, it's always somebody else, came up to you and said, you know, like the game of life, you have salary cards. If you've ever played that game, right? And said, I'll exchange my annual income for yours. No strings attached. I'm willing to bet nearly everybody in this room would say what? Yes, of course, gladly. I'll take your salary card. I mean, so, so whether you already have wealth or are working to gain it in your life right now, what's the bottom line? We tend to view wealth, riches, as a categorical good. End of story. Except there's this one little inconvenient thing called Jesus' perspective, which wasn't quite so rosy to understate it. Matthew 19, verse 23, listen. What does Jesus say? Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel, is that a big animal or a small animal? Big animal. To go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Or or consider the warning of the apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who desire to be rich. You, you thought you were getting away, right? Because you're not rich. I'm not rich. But do you desire it? Those who desire to be rich, Jesus was just talking at the rich, but who's Paul going at now? Who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Only in the first century. No, no. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Please don't move past that quickly. If you, if you tore the Bible's perspective on money, the more you will find, friend, that the Bible views money as a canister of nuclear fuel, okay? It has power to accomplish tremendous good. And it has power to accomplish tremendous destruction. 
when human beings, not abstractly, people like you and me, relate to money, engage with money at the intersection of your life and wealth, that collision is never neutral. It either produces great good or tremendous destruction. And as we, we dive into James 5 verse 1 here, there's, there's not a whole lot of lead up to his focus. So, so this entire letter, if you've been with us for the last couple of months, we've been studying it. You might know it was originally written to a group of primarily Jewish Christians who were scattered around the known world at the time. So he's largely writing to believers for most of this letter. That's why he says things over and over again, like brothers or brothers and sisters. But, but when we get to chapter five, verse one, James, he turns his attention away from, in a primary sense, away from the people of God to a group of unbelievers that he addresses in the strongest terms, a group that he refers to, look at verse one, as the rich. So he'll get back to brothers and sisters in chapter five, verse seven. But for these first six verses, he's, he's not primarily talking about them, at least in a direct sense. Okay, instead, James is condemning the rich with a, the invective of an Old Testament prophet. And he's speaking to these folks as men and women who are entrenched in opposition to the ways of God and, and the people of God. So I want you to think with me for a second, why would James in writing a letter where he's primarily addressing Christians say, hold on a second, I want you to listen as I talk to them. Why would he do that? So we, so we can get behind James and hold up signs like, down with the rich. No, no. I think the reason that James wants to give his Christian audience a glimpse of God's perspective on a group of people who are outside the church and quite likely oppressing the members of the church is because he wants to bring a word of both comfort and warning to the church. So it's a word of comfort in a sense that these verses reveal our universal accountability to God on planet earth, as in this whole universe, nobody gets away with anything. God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. And, and this is a word of warning. Please hear this friend, lest we envy the rich. Cause remember, we never think of ourselves as rich. It's always somebody else, of course. We envy the rich and we fall into the same spiritual trap. So, so I have a word of comfort and a word of warning for you, but this is more than anything else, a word of warning. And it's a warning because, you know, a few years ago, and, and this has cropped up all over the place, the Chicago Tribune ran a story, they covered a recent Oxfam report on global poverty, and, and they wrote this, to be among the wealthiest half, half of the world, the wealthiest half, an adult <clears throat> needed to own only $3,210 in net assets, minus debts. And to be in the top 10%, you ready for this? 
worldwide, a person needed to have only $68,800 in wealth. And according to the Federal Reserve, the median American family, not average, median, okay, had a net worth of $81,000. So what should that tell you right now? That should tell us, friends, that, that we dare not exclude or exempt ourselves from the warning in this passage just because you're not Warren Buffett. We, we need the warning James is bringing to us here. We, we need to be taught and confronted with the fact, and I think this is the main point of this whole warning, that, that present prosperity, your present prosperity, easily, readily, by default, leads to future misery. I wonder if you've ever thought about that, that, that present prosperity easily leads to future misery. Wealth is not an unqualified good. It has to be handled with care because it has the power to destroy you, friend. And, and James gives us two reasons that's the case. He says a lot in here, but we're gonna look under the, at the, all this under two headers. Why is that the case? Why does present prosperity easily pave the way to future misery? First reason, point one, because all who live for earthly treasure will likewise perish. All who live for earthly treasure will likewise perish. Look at verse one. If you have your Bible open, because in verse one, James tells the rich exactly what they should do. They shouldn't kick back. They shouldn't pat themselves on the back. They shouldn't celebrate their financial success or write a bestseller so everybody else can join them. They should weep. Come now, you rich, weep and howl on account of the miseries that are coming upon you. I wonder if that strikes you as strange. I mean, the more I thought about this this week, I thought that is so bizarre on one level because we think of wealth as the key to avoiding the miseries of this life, right? I mean, that's what we want. The more wealth you have, the more you can just spend your way out of trouble or spend your way around trouble. And yet, what is James saying? That wealth is actually obtaining misery for these folks. So what sort of miseries are coming upon this group of rich people? Well, well, James identifies two categories. Here's the first one, okay? First, their wealth is perishing. Or if you look at verse two, he says it even stronger, your wealth has rotted. Okay, notice he's not just saying, hey, one day it's possible <laughs> your wealth could rot. No, he says the decay has already begun. Perfect tense. And, and in an agricultural society, that, that's not hard to imagine, right? You can imagine a barn filled up with grain, just piles and piles and piles. Think of a, a big silo you've seen when you've driven through rural areas filled with grain that from the moment it's harvested begins to decay. But even as you're looking at that image, you might think, well, well I'm smarter than that, Matthew. I'll let all those people who live in Palatine and Cumberland try their hand at wealth through agriculture. I, I'm not gonna go there. My wealth is in real estate and cars. 
you know, big ticket items with, with solid resale value. Well, unfortunately, a couple months ago, I got out, it was getting out of my car and I pushed open the driver's side door and, and I noticed that, that the paint along the bottom sheet metal seam, you know what I'm talking about, was bubbling. I thought, well, that's odd. So I opened up all my car doors. What do you think I found? Lots of paint bubbling. And the more I looked into it, I discovered the doors were actually rusting from the inside out on my car. And then just last week, I found moss growing out of the frame in our sunroom, sunroom windows. I was blown off the deck and I was like, what's that? There is a plant growing out of that window. And I thought to myself, I didn't put dirt in that window frame. How is a plant growing out of that window frame? That, that window frame is painted. It is covered in aluminum. Aluminum's a good, long-lasting, eternal building product. But I discovered that you could actually push your entire finger through that window frame because it was rotting from the inside out. That's just the last couple weeks, months of my life. You could add your own illustrations. What, what's the point, friends? The point is that, that even our most prized possessions in this life, they don't last, right? They don't last. Eventually, all you science nerds out there, entropy wins. So we paint, we repair, we replace, but, but what are we doing? We're just prolonging the inevitable because eventually all of our material possessions will fall apart. And in James' day, look at verse two, clothing was a significant source of wealth. But that had the same problem. Your clothing has become moth-eaten. All your material wealth, James is saying, is transient and passing away. It eventually just all winds up in a garbage dump somewhere. It doesn't matter how much you paid, friend, for that car that's out in that parking lot or for you listening at home, is parked in your garage right now. Eventually, all the tires and belts and hoses and other parts I don't know how to name in that car that are made out of rubber will rot. You don't have to do anything. Just let it sit there. And yet you say, oh, but I'm smarter than that, Matthew. My wealth is in the stock market. <laughs> My money's in a diversified portfolio of corporations and enduring timeless commodities like gold, silver. We'll look at verse three. Your gold and silver have corroded. And unless you get hung up on the fact that technically silver doesn't corrode, it tarnishes, <laughs> okay? And gold doesn't. Well, keep in mind, James is speaking in word pictures here, okay? And his underlying point, his main point rings entirely true. Even the most secure investments we can make in this life, seemingly secure, are not guaranteed, right? They're prone to corruption and loss. You know, one of my relatives 
had a lot of stock in a bank. It was an out-of-state bank that had been there for decades, decades, that had done really well. And you know, banks aren't like Tesla, right? They're, they're a pretty low-risk investment. It's a bank. Banks have money. That's just what they do. It's kind of boring. Well, earlier this year, do you know the feds came in and closed down that bank for improper management? And so if you had a savings account, you got some help from the FDIC, up to a certain amount, of course. But if you had stock, guess what? In 24 hours, every share was worthless. Every share. She lived on it for decades. Worthless. I mean, you could add your own illustrations, right? I mean, our, our economy could tank. Those of you who have come here from a country like Venezuela, I don't need to convince you of this. Our nation's credit could run out. Look at Greece. And, and if you think you'll be fine because you've gone old school and you've got a big old fat pile of cash under your mattress at home, don't tell anybody about that. Well, there's this little danger called inflation <laughs> that's eventually gonna wipe out any value in that bag of money. The whole point is what? What is James urging us to recognize, friends? That earthly wealth isn't stable. It's not enduring. But notice in verse three, look back there, that it's not just what the laws of nature or the sufferings of this life do to our earthly treasure that brings misery, okay? Far more serious is what our earthly treasure eventually does to everyone who clings to them, right? So, so in other words, the misery coming upon the rich here isn't just that their earthly treasures are perishing, it's that all who cling to those perishing treasures will what? Likewise perish. It's the second misery coming upon the rich. Look at verse three. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. What? <laughs> okay, help me out, James. How, how will the futility of wealth testify against the rich? The godless rich. Well, it will, friend, in the sense that on the final day, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, your wealth, your riches, may very well testify that you wasted your life. You, you lived your entire life for what will not last and will never satisfy your soul. You, you lived for a fading, fleeting, transient, created thing. And you made that your deepest love, the, the object of your greatest affection, okay, your, your functional God, a man-made idol that cannot see or hear or save. You did that. James is pointing forward here to the great assize, 
where what you lived for will be exposed by God, perhaps, as entirely worthless in the light of his glory and his grace. And that, friend, to your eternal shame and condemnation. Jeremiah 2, verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate. Translation, this is insane, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I, I want you to think about that day, friend, of your judgment, because that's gonna be here before you know it. And if you live for earthly riches instead of the God who created you to love him first and best, that all the corrosion of your earthly treasure will culminate in something. You know what that is? It's gonna culminate in the corrosion of your body and soul in hell. That's the warning. The present futility of riches. All the, the moss grown out of my windows rust on your car door, <laughs> that's a foretaste of the eternal destruction awaiting everybody who clings to that stuff. You ever thought the laws of nature have a spiritual lesson for us? Yeah, they do. And so when the gods of gold and silver win your affection, or when, dare I say, you're happier shopping online Sunday night, than you are worshiping with the people of God on Sunday morning. Be warned, take heed. Because the problem isn't just that your earthly treasure will fail to satisfy you. The problem is that what you're clinging to will poison your life. So be warned. You don't, by the way, you don't have to be Bill Gates for this to happen, right? Okay, you, you could have 40 bucks in your pocket or in your piggy bank at home. But, but if you love that money more than you love God, that'll eventually destroy you. And, and that is why James says the rich should weep and howl because, because the end of the line for them isn't eternal comfort, it's eternal misery because of the hold that their wealth has on the affections of their heart. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6, 24? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. <laughs> Bottom line, all who live for earthly treasure will likewise perish, period. And that's the first reason James gives us for believing that, that present prosperity easily paves the way to future misery. Here's the second, okay? The second reason, point two, all who pursue selfish gain will answer to God. They'll answer to God. Look at the second half of verse three. If you start there and, and, and work through the end of verse six, what do you have? There, there's a catalog of exactly what these rich people had done to deserve divine judgment. And, and the first category of action is summarized at the end of verse three. What have they done? First category, 
you stored up treasure in the last days. Now he's not talking about the last days of their life necessarily, okay? He's talking about the last days in which all of us, you, me right now, presently live. In what sense are we all living in the last days? You see that phrase all over the Bible. It's the last days because what? The very next event in God's work of salvation is the final event. It's the return of Christ because he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And so in the last days, in these days, we're living with them right now, the rich stored up treasures on earth, acquiring more and more wealth for themselves. Now, in saying that, am I indicting every one of you who has a savings account? No, I'm not, okay? Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So, so diligent saving for future needs, strictly speaking, is not the problem, okay? The, the problem with laying up treasure in the last days, please listen to this, is both what the rich were doing with their wealth and how they were gaining their wealth in the first place. Two problems. Because bottom line, they were hoarding it. Luke 12, 16, and Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? What a wonderful problem to have. <laughs> I've got nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Friend, do you realize that the biblical purpose of money isn't something you get to choose? You don't get to pick as an individual free American, well, I would like the purpose of my money to be. You don't, you don't get that option, okay, if you're a Christian. It's not as if, well, I gave God his due share, and so now, what do I feel like doing with all the rest of this? I mean, I gave you your share, so can you just be quiet over there, God? The, the biblical purpose of money, all our money, mind you, is what? To love God and love our neighbor. Very simple. You were expecting something complicated. It's very simple, okay? We, so, so we work, we save, we invest so that we'll have something to give for God's kingdom, to, to advance God's priorities and further his purposes. And so the rich man in James 5 and the rich in, in Luke 12 are the same. They didn't use their wealth for God's kingdom. They used their wealth to secure their own. So they were hoarding their wealth instead of loving God and their neighbor with their wealth. But notice in James 5, it's not just what they were doing, right? With their wealth, that was the problem. It was how they gained it in the first place. Look at verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So the rich stored up their wealth, grew their portfolio, 
in part by refusing to pay their employees the wages they deserved. It was a grievous act of injustice. And I think it's hard for us to appreciate because you couldn't file for unemployment. So, so most of the agricultural work in James' day was done by day laborers. And the way it worked is you would hire yourself out to a wealthy landowner for a day, usually a 12-hour work day. And at the end of that day, he would give you your wage, your pay for that day. And then you would go home and put that in your retirement account. No, you would use that money and typically all of that money to buy food for yourself and your family. And then you would repeat that the next day and the next day until you died. So if you didn't get paid, guess what? You didn't eat. Nor did your five-year-old. It was a grievous act of injustice. Which is why James says, look at verse six. By treating your hired laborers unjustly, you have condemned and functionally murdered the righteous person. I mean, likely referring to some members of the Christian community. Misery is coming upon you, James is saying, because your acts of injustice are literally starving people to death. Oh, but James, just have a seat, okay? It's getting a little hot in here. Everybody does it, man. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's standard business practice. How else am I gonna get ahead? I mean, give me, cut me a little slack. I don't withhold as many wages as the other guys do. Is, is, is running things with a little, shall we say, flexibility in the integrity department really that big of a deal? How else am I gonna close that sale? Well, look at verse four, the end of it. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of all. Friend, if, if you're engaged, maybe nobody else knows this but you, if you are engaged in illegal or unjust business practices, if, if you're sacrificing your integrity for the sake of the bottom line, you will not ultimately answer to the SEC or the state police or the FBI or the HR department. You will answer to God. And you should fear that. Be sobered by that. Because he is the Lord of hosts who avenges every single wrong. God doesn't just care about what you do with your wealth. He's deeply interested in how you are gaining it in the first place. And, and that's a sober warning. If, if you occupy a position of commercial power or influence, and it's a tremendous comfort to those of you who have suffered under the same, right? So what, what is James telling us here? God hears. God knows. The, the HR department might turn a blind eye, but King Jesus does not. And your boss and your company and your supervisor, all those people that have oppressed you perhaps, they're gonna give an account to God for the way they treated you. 
And, and so the first category of action that the rich committed here, what, what they were doing that was paving the way to future misery was storing up treasure in the last days, hoarding their wealth unjustly gained. Okay, but the second category emerges in verse five. And this is the final category. Look at what James says in verse five. What have they done? You lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Living self-indulgently, listen to me very carefully, isn't about exceeding a Christian salary cap, okay? Or, or giving away a Christian percentage of your money. It, it's not about crossing some sort of biblical line into an unbiblical standard of living. It's not about any of those things. Living self-indulgently, first and foremost, is a matter of the heart. And to all of you, when you heard me say that, immediately thought, oh, thank God, Matthew. Because I thought you were gonna make some sort of uncomfortable, practical challenge to me that, that I don't wanna deal with. But you know, if it's a matter of the heart, I can just kinda roll with it. Because it's between me and Jesus, and he knows my heart, and you don't, so. Not so fast, friend. Because when I say living self-indulgently is first and foremost a matter of the heart, I'm not obscuring the standard of godliness. What am I doing? What's James doing? Raising the bar. Why? Because I'm challenging you as the word of God in James 4, 5 challenges you to honestly evaluate your financial priorities. Is your highest financial priority pleasing yourself or pleasing God? Simple question. Spending on yourself or, or blessing the people around you. I mean, listen, the, the entire logic of the gospel is what? That we have been blessed to be a blessing, right? Both, both spiritually and materially. If you're a Christian, God has given you his most precious possession. What's that? The gift of his son, his one and only son, who laid down his life for you on the cross so you could be forgiven and reconciled to God. God loves you, friend. And he demonstrated that love, not, not with some sort of token kindness, but with radical generosity. And now he commands us to do likewise, to, to lay down our life, our home, our cars, our investments, our, our hard-earned wages that we bled for, for the sake of loving others the way he has loved us. That's the biblical purpose of money. So, so be honest, okay? Please be honest. If somebody who doesn't know you very well looked at your checkbook this week, would they conclude that your wealth is devoted to your kingdom or God's? It's a hard issue, yes, but it translates into very practical financial decisions, <laughs> especially what we do with our wealth after providing for ourselves and our family. So running with this, how do we know that self-indulgence? How do we know if we're sinning against the Lord, violating the biblical purpose of wealth by living luxuriously? 
How do we do that? Well, living luxuriously doesn't mean exceeding the median standard of living in your neighborhood, okay? Living luxuriously, it means embracing a standard of living that is more devoted to your material comfort than your eternal joy. I'm gonna say that again, because that's really important. Living luxuriously means embracing a standard of living that is more devoted to your material comfort than your eternal joy. It means trying to have your best life now. You know how you know if you're living luxuriously? You are if you never stop to ask questions like this, Lord, should I buy this car or buy this house even though I can technically afford it? Or is there something else for the sake of your kingdom that you want me to do with this money? People who live luxuriously never ask questions like that. And Paul reminds us, don't don't hear what I'm not saying, 1 Timothy 6, 17, that God is the one who richly provides us with what? Everything to enjoy. So so we wanna receive the material gifts God sees fit to give us with humble and grateful hearts, not a sense of upper middle class guilt or shame. But seeing as how practically all of us are rich in this present age, we've proved that already, We need and must not be haughty, Paul says. You know, flaunting our wealth through through certain social status symbols that we purchase or, or secretly delighting in parading our riches to others. Instead, Paul says what? We must use our wealth, 1 Timothy 6, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we can take hold of that which is truly life. So friend, please hear this. If the Lord has entrusted wealth to you, the greatest joy you will ever find will not come from spending it on earthly treasures or material comfort. Never. Your your greatest joy will come from using all of your wealth for Jesus' sake. All of it, not 10%, all of it by supporting his church, blessing his people, loving those who don't know him and funding the work of gospel ministry where Christ has yet to be named. Therein lies your greatest joy. So if your wealth is pointed like a compass, where's, where's it pointed? If it's pointed toward yourself, in self-indulgent luxury, James says, God says, it will destroy you. But if your wealth is pointed toward God and others in radical generosity, it will multiply your joy. <laughs> okay, the, the enduring and unshakable joy that comes from choosing Jesus, not money as your treasure and using all of it to serve and love him. The rich in James' day, they weren't doing that. What were they doing? They were fattening their hearts in a day of slaughter. They they were feasting the affections of their heart on on the very treasures of this world that were progressively leading them to destruction. They, they, They were like a fat pig who walks into that barn following a trail of food, hastening the day of his demise. 
So I challenge you to not be deceived by the twisted logic that present prosperity never leads to future misery. It happens so easily. And you're not immune to that. I'm not immune to that simply because we're in a church right now, okay? Or, or just because you put some money in the offering last week. We need to ask God to search our hearts, friends. We need to heed the warning. Present prosperity easily paves the way to future misery. So, so don't think, I know what I'll do. I'll store up treasure in the last days to head off future misery. That's crazy. Why? Because storing up treasure in the last days is the most surefire way to obtain future misery. And the good news of the gospel is what? That Jesus died to free us from the enslaving power of riches and possessions and stuff, including the love of money, so that we could be free to do what? To worship him with our money, right? You know, when the disciples said in Matthew 19, Jesus, where, where we began, if only with difficulty can a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven, then come on, man, who can be saved? <laughs> what did Jesus say back to them? Guys, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know, Jesus is the one friend who became poor so that you could become truly rich. Rich in mercy, rich in divine favor, rich in God's love that we were singing about today, rich in eternal glory. And, and to the degree the Lord sees fit to entrust you with earthly wealth, also rich in generosity. And so if today, as I'm preaching, you, you feel your need for God's power to, to seek his kingdom with your wealth instead of building your own, I want you to take heart in this promise from Luke 12. And if the band would come up as I read this, just close your eyes and listen to this promise from the Lord. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Lord, we, we ask you right now that you would Deliver us as your people from the trap of selfish gain. And we pray that instead of excluding ourselves from that temptation and railing at the rich all around us, that we would stop and have the humility to let you search our heart. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to love Jesus with all our earthly treasure because you are our greatest treasure. And we thank you for your promise that all who choose to run that way instead of the way of the rich in James 5 will never be disappointed. Equip us to do that now, Lord, to let go of loving our wealth 
so we can love you with our wealth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.